Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Richard Epstein. Richard, you're a pretty forgiving guy, but even you have your limits. A few weeks ago, President Biden announced that he was forgiving almost a half trillion dollars in student loans. Uh, Are you okay with that? No, I'm not. But you're an optimist. What you're doing is you're only talking about the number of loans that are going to be forgiven. Uh, This bill also contains a set of provisions that renegotiates the payment schedules for these loans, making them longer and more drawn out uh, with respect to both existing loans, I believe, and also with respect to future loans. And there was a Wharton study which says that the losses from that particular portion of the program may be equal in dimensions to the $500 billion that is going to be forgiven. So that when you put the whole thing together, you have yourself a trillion dollar package. And this has to be contrasted with the amount of savings they thought they could scrounge out um, in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which was at less than a trillion dollars. That's all gone with one stroke of the pen. What it turns out is that you cannot do comprehensive policy anymore and have a system of legislation that wraps up the loose ends because the executive order seems to give you a very powerful end run around these particular processes. I think it's extremely important that one just stress the structural point about this is what good are compromises that are made through the usual legislative process if they can be upended by unilateral actions of the president on collateral matters that were not part of the original debate, but which go to the central issues of that debate, which is how we constrain the problems about inflation and government expenditures. So I am not at all particularly happy with this. I can say quite confidently that I am not alone in this particular sentiment. There is a fairly sharp division of opinion. And if I had to give an explanation of why it is, is that Joe Biden is thinking that he could basically solidify his views amongst the thinking intellectuals who have got college loans and is not either courting or even giving up on many of the blue-collar workers who never went to college, never took out any loan, or those poor, unfortunate saps who took out their loans, scrimped and saved and paid them back, uh, so that you've got all of those equity problems as well. But I think, in effect, this issue will, in most places, be a loser for Biden. But I noticed that the last poll in New York State suggested that a majority of the citizens in this progressive capital were in favor of the particular proposal. Uh, So as ever, it's very difficult to sort of play these things out. When you start giving goodies to one group, they are very pleased. It is not clear that the other individuals who have to bear the excess burdens are going to be equally dissatisfied. And if it turns out that they aren't, uh, then we understand that shoveling the dough out through various kinds of entitlement programs is a very powerful way to remain in political power. And so with that, back to you, Adam. Yeah, I was struck when when this was being debated and then when it actually happened, I was struck by the the criticisms that this was very unfair because it was only forgiving the debts of a very specific and in today's vocabulary, we'd say a very privileged part of the American public. It doesn't do anything for other kinds of debt. It doesn't do anything for people who already paid their debts. And it creates all the wrong incentives for people who are thinking about incurring educational debts. And so that was offered as a criticism, but it's it seems to me that that's for the people who made this this happen, this is actually a feature and not a bug. Yes. Because what they're doing is they're creating entirely new political constituencies 
sort of full of resentment for what was just happened. Uh, why didn't they get their bailouts? And now they'll create a political constituency for, for future bailouts for these other groups, uh, creating all the wrong incentives and all the wrong kinds of, of jealousies and, and envies that, that tend to poison our politics. So that, I agree with you that this is the beginning, not the end. Uh, it'll probably be now at the opening bid for any serious Democratic presidential contender in the primary process. They're going to have to uh, promise to give some kind of federal loan forgiveness to a preferred constituency, even if it's just the same or a different version of the student loan thing over and over again. Um, just as I think future Republican presidential candidates will probably have to have their own Supreme Court uh, nomination list like Trump had. I think that future Democratic nominees or contenders will will have to have their own uh, loan forgiveness list. <laughs> now, maybe we'll we'll unpack this. Just one more thing, I guess I'd add on top of that is is you know in this day and age, it seems the only way that things get done at the federal level, other than through the administrative state um, through regulations and so on, is either spending laws, uh, appropriations bills. Um, or through the non-enforcement of laws. And you wrote about that years ago. You did the piece Government by Waiver for National Affairs. Yes. Um, now we have sort of a combination of the two. We have, uh, it's not appropriations of a, technically, but it's it's spending money and it's spending money through non-enforcement. Now, I know you wrote more recently on the loan forgiveness, the loan jubilee for 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 Hoover, do you, do you want to unpack maybe the the legal arguments you you sketched out there? Yeah, I think it's probably important to link the two papers together. Uh, that government by waiver paper is one of my favorites because what it does is it indicates how it is that politics, given weak standing rules, can really upset the way in which the balance goes. And so the first thing that has to happen is there has to be an obligation that is imposed upon broad classes of individuals. And then what happens is there has to be the ability to give selective waivers of that particular obligation so you could target one group of individuals rather than another. And when I wrote about this in the uh, waiver situation back in 2011 in National Affairs, I said that, you know, there were all these mini um, health care plans that didn't quite meet the requirements of the Obama standard. And if you looked around, you realize that short-term relief was given in far greater numbers to blue-rated organizations like labor unions than red-rated organizations like various kinds of businesses. And that sort of indicates to you but you don't have to take money in order to create favor. You have to give it to somebody else. And then the key feature here is the American standing rules are quite adequate for dealing with people where there's direct pushing against them. They're forced to do something. But the standing rules don't work particularly well. And that's going to be true with the student loans, where somebody's trying to say, not that you've hit me, but by giving a gift to somebody else, what you've done is you increase the band, the burdens that are otherwise going to be on me. Those are recalled as generalized losses not covered by the standing rule, uh, so that you have a certain amount of uh, ability to escape over scrutiny because the political process cannot be reinforced by the legal process. And that's exactly the kind of problem that's going to be faced with the student loan program. You got a trillion dollars worth of forgivenesses and so forth. Finding somebody who can stop it, even if the theory is strong, is going to be hard. The argument that I made in the piece that just came out on the Hoover 
was if you start to look at the way in which these things are worked, uh, there was no way that this thing could be regarded as authorized. We have in our usual grandiloquent language, we have something called the HEROES Act, which is intended to give relief to people who are involved in war, military operations, or other national emergencies. And this is obviously a very very tough test, at least as stated, because you have to show that there's an immediate kind of crisis. You can't fudge the emergency requirement in the statute by announcing, we hereby declare an emergency. So what you're reduced to doing is to saying that all the stuff that declared emergencies back in March of 2020, somehow or other carries over two and a half um, years later. So it's created an emergency today. And then what you have to do is to talk about the patterns of forgiveness. Uh, the statute makes it pretty clear that the only people to whom you can forgive this stuff are those people who are left worse off in consequence of what has happened. Uh, if you look at the actual statute, it then proceeds in great detail to indicate who falls into this class and how you determine it. Uh, what the government memo did is it simply ignored all the individuation procedures and said that this statute now authorizes blanket waivers, even though the class of people who receive student loans is very, very heterogeneous. Many people had no problem paying them back. Many people, in fact, did better under the COVID regime than they did earlier. None of this really starts to matter as far as this is concerned. They all get swept into the same uh, type of situation. So by the time you're done with this, a bill which was probably meant to allow the government uh, to waive various kinds of mistakes, you file in the wrong office, you file on the wrong date, you file with the wrong papers. Uh, you could waive those provisions that the statute makes clear. The statute doesn't make it clear. Indeed, it seems to imply the opposite. You can't just simply waive and forgive the definite entirely. Uh, but the um, report that was prepared by the OLC said, no, you can just waive the entire debt. And I think you know, waiving a condition and waiving a debt are rather different words. There was an earlier memo that had been prepared in the uh, Betsy DeVos Department of Education in January of 2021, just before they left office. And they invoked the famous uh, Scalia phrase, you don't find elephants concealed in mouse holes to say that you cannot infer a power to forgive debts enormously at this level from an ability to modify dates of one kind or another. And it turns out the Biden people duly take this on and say, we can do pretty much anything. I think, in fact, if you could find a way to get into court, this memo will not stand up against any kind of scrutiny and the thing would be set aside. But as I mentioned earlier, the standing issue is going to be of great importance. So that's the way in which I would look at it. So I agree with a lot of that. I agree. That, oh, good. <laughs> I agree that this will there will be challenges getting this issue into court because of standing. Uh -huh. um, and that's, as you said, that is a, an ongoing feature of, of any, you know, of, of the entire government by waiver um, uh, theme that we've seen the last few years. So I agree with that. And I also agree that one reason to know that the government is getting this wrong is the increasingly popular major questions doctrine, where the Supreme Court has repeated over and over again, including two cases in this last term, the, the West Virginia versus EPA case and the OSHA vaccine mandate case. But going all the way back to the elephant, elephants and mouse holes talk from the Supreme Court in the MCI case and Brown and Williamson, over and over again, the court says, 
when we're interpreting statutes, we have to be serious about actually understanding what the words meant in the context in which they were enacted. Uh, and surely Congress, it strains credulity to suggest that Congress in this provision was authorizing the president to make wholesale categorical renunciations of, of, of federal student loan debt to the tune of a half trillion dollars or more. And so I think that'll be a big issue. The other reason I think that Biden administration would have real problems on its hands if it's got to court is another line of recent Supreme Court cases. Uh, and, and this gets to the point of that OLC memo you mentioned. The OLC memo, to its credit, is very careful in emphasizing that the president has power, in its opinion, to, to, to forgive these loans uh, to the extent that forgiveness is necessary uh, to help mitigate the impacts of the pandemic. Right. That, after all, is the, the point of the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act, in addition to the language that you highlighted, it's it's phrased in terms of national emergencies. And again, it was a post 9-11 act. Uh, and so the OLC memo very lawyerly, very judiciously returns time and time again to the pandemic. Now, the problem for the Biden administration is that for the two years running up to this, and actually, in all of the media and, and, and White House discussions surrounding this, when it actually happened, has nothing to do with the pandemic. It's all about this, uh, what, what they would describe as, as middle class uh, and lower middle class uh, relief, debt relief. Um, it has nothing to do with people being impacted by the pandemic, because after all, lots of people, their, 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 uh, their, their wealth or their income was affected by the pandemic. They are left out of this. A lot of people who benefit from this program. In fact, it wouldn't, it, I think it's quite likely that most people who were affected by the pandemic or who were getting this forgiveness probably weren't harmed economically by the, by the pandemic. But in any event, the, the, the policy was never created to, to, really mitigate the impacts of the pandemic. And that's a problem now for the Biden administration because of uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, for the Trump administration's uh, addition of the citizenship question to the census, right? In that case, it was um, uh, New York versus Department of Commerce. The, the Roberts Court held that under the APA, the agency has to give a, a, has to give a thorough justification for its action. Uh, and while the courts normally don't peer inside of the minds of the decision makers, they usually just go by what's in the written record. There are extraordinary cases where the get stated reasons from the agency are so palpably pretextual in light of everything we know about the issue and everything that the administration has said about the issue that we just can't take the agency's explanation at face value. So in that case, the court said, we're not going to take at face value the Commerce Department's justification for the citizenship question. And I think whatever the Department of Education ends up doing on these loans is going to run into the exact same problem. Because to pass muster under the OLC's justifications, they're going to have to make it about the pandemic. But to the extent they make it about the pandemic, it just will not add up. It won't square with what the administration itself and what everybody around the administration has been saying about this issue for two years. So I think that's another reason and maybe even the primary reason why the Biden administration's policy will fail in court if it ever gets to court. 
Yeah, I mean, this I think is perfectly correct. I don't think that they will be able to maintain this, but what's going to happen is it's going to take a time to do this. And so one of the issues you have to worry about, Adam, is what's going to happen in the interim. Uh, Can you get a preliminary stay against this, particularly when there's standing problems? Right. And here, in effect, I think what happens is, you've known for my entire professional career, I've always thought that the American standing doctrine, as generated under Article 3, is a complete and inexcusable anomaly. Um, you have to have a way for somebody to challenge things if Marbury and Madison is going to be law. And it turns out in those cases where you have discrete plaintiffs, it may be easily enough done. But if it turns out you have cases where there are only diffuse, numerous individuals and none of them can sue, it becomes almost impossible to understand how you can reconcile a major questions doctrine that requires a searching review without a presumption of legitimacy with a standing doctrine which keeps you out of court altogether. And so the question is, one of two things is going to have to happen. Either they're going to have to play frivolous games with the standing doctrine to find that somebody's in, or perhaps more plausibly, argue that even dissenting members in the House of Representatives of the Senate have enough standings because you circumvented the um, appropriations procedure so as to go into court, or you're going to have to completely change the standing doctrine. I'm in favor of the latter. I've always thought that if you have concrete plaintiffs, you don't need the second tier plaintiffs to come in. But if you don't have primary plaintiffs and somebody in the second tier has to come in, and the way in which you coordinate litigation is through multi-jurisdictional, multi-district management, so you concentrate all the cases in one or two places rather than having them be brought every throughout the United States. I gather the Republicans, it's no great secret, I'm sure, have been trying to figure out how to put together a campaign to do all of this stuff. And I would assume that uh, they have to come up with a strategy of this sort. It would be, I think, a real travesty on an issue of this momentous nation where you have arguably a rogue executive upsetting the principles, not only the major questions doctrine, but also separation of powers, and then have a constitutional court which says uh, the Supreme Court can't enforce either of those two things because of the standing doctrine. So do you think standing in its original pristine form is going to survive in the face of a case like this? I'm just curious. Well, there's been interesting debates around standing for the last few years. In fact, Mm -hmm. there was an 11th Circuit judge, and I'm momentarily blanking on his name, uh, who wrote a very interesting opinion in the last year, year and a half, suggesting that maybe the the current approach to standing really rooted in Justice Scalia's Lujan opinion from 20 years ago. Almost that maybe it, it it misses the mark. Yeah, it, it, that's right. That's right. That maybe it misses the mark uh, in a few. Misses the uh, mark. In a few ways. By a country mile. Well, I, I'll say, you know. I'll give two cheers for it, at least. I mean, at the end of the day, the courts are not like a standing committee of ad hoc constitutional supervision, right? They are there to decide cases and controversies. Well, this would be a big case and controversy if you block a trillion dollar program. Maybe. it's not. I, maybe. It, it would be a case and controversy in the general sense. But just like I was saying before, Richard, when you're reading statutes, we ought to keep in mind not just what a case or a controversy means to us today, but we ought to think about what that phrase or those terms meant when the constitution was written. I agree with that. And so I, I, I'm open to the idea that it's time to recalibrate um, the, the standing doctrine. In fact, a, a legal scholar to be named later uh, workshopped a very interesting paper on this a few months ago uh, at the program I co-direct at Scalia Law, ironically, uh, at Scalia Law, the, the Center for, <laughs> yeah, Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And so we'll see um, what kind of debate emerges from that. And, and, 
as we've been saying, the fact that these these non-enforcement issues, either non-enforcing laws or not enforcing here these these loan obligations, they're becoming more and more prevalent. That it seems inevitable the court will have to grapple a bit more with this. Um, now, I don't think there's any way to escape. Yeah. Um, you cannot have a world in which you eliminate deference on a very broad basis and then say that non-reviewability is going to be the appropriate standard. Look, one of the things that I like to say about this is if you're a devout originalist and you start looking at Article 3, it says the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. There is no word standing, which is built into it. The doctrine of standing comes into the law only through common law interpretation of one sort or another, starting with the English and indeed the Roman law cases on that. And what it says, in effect, is that you don't have standing to bring a case if it's none of your business. And what we do is if we have cases where people are run over by trucks, we know who's going to get the cause of action. But it turns out that in this particular case, where nobody is run over, but everybody is hurt, the rules that apply to various kinds of voluntary organizations, corporations, partnerships, charitable associations have always said in the private context, any one member of these organizations can sue. He cannot recover unless he succeeds. But if he does succeed, then he could recover by imposing a lien on the organization that has benefited from his particular services to get fair and reasonable remuneration. If that principle works everywhere else, it works with state governments, it works with municipal governments, it works with voluntary association, why is it not going to work with respect to the United States? And if you go back and look at the Sutherland opinion in Frothingham and Morgan and Massachusetts against um, Morden, what do you, you uh, Mellon, you, you see there's no answer to that particular question. It just simply says, well, it applies at the state level, but we have more people at the federal level than we do at the state level. Is this really an argument? Um, if you've got 300 million people, we don't have this problem. Of course we have it. If anything, the problem is more acute as the organization gets larger. So I think they just have to budge on this. And the way in which Justice Scalia did it, if you call it Lujan, he said, well, if somebody said, well, we're worried about the Endangered Species Act and its extraterritorial application. So if you buy a picket to go to Amman or to Nineveh or somewhere like that, then you get standing. Well, that's artificial standing. You're making it up as you go along. It's not as though you've been injured in any of the traditional senses. And one of the signs that a doctrine is decadent is that it's, it becomes fictionalized in order to make sure that it doesn't destroy its application. And in this particular case, it's no clear what kind of train ticket you're supposed to buy to what place in order to deal with this sort of thing. And I would hate for somebody to basically have a convoluted standing argument that doesn't make any sense to deal with a very serious problem where there's a major danger. And I have, well, I'll put it to you as bluntly as I can. I think one of the reasons why they were prepared to take this audacious position is they thought there was a substantial chance they could win on standing. Oh, I, I totally agree with that point. Well, that's just horrible. Essentially, what you're saying is the reason I can do this is A, it's illegal and B, I won't be caught. Well, that's what they're saying. Well, what's the, but what's the alternative? Give standing to every give taxpayer, standing. give standing to every citizen. Sure. What happens is every taxpayer, and then when you get multiple taxpayers suing, what you do is organize multi-district litigation so as to reduce it to a number of forum. That's what we do when people do have standing. So if you're talking about you know, bringing suits, class action suits against a drug company, uh, which is disseminated product across all jurisdictions, you have hundreds of plaintiffs, you get 20 of these seats brought in different places, and 
the multi-district litigation does two things. It figures out where it's going to go, and then it picks the class representatives. Um, you don't have to invent novel processes. You just have to bring to bear the processes now used for diffuse classes across multiple districts, and they carry over without a T. So you can redress these things pretty easily. The causation is not particularly difficult. And so the question is why if there's a massive harm to everybody, does nobody get the right to sue? Instead of saying we have a massive harm to everybody, some representatives can come forward and then we have a mechanism to compensate them if they're successful and they go home empty handed if they're not. We have all of this stuff. It's used in England. It's used in the States. It's used everywhere else in the federal court. And there is no place whatsoever in the doctrine or in the constitution where the word standing is used and the explicit reference to cases in law and equity. It's the equity cases that use this mechanism. How could it not be that? You're not asking for an advisory opinion. You're asking for these guys to shut down a huge program. So, you know, I have from the time I started to breathe on this question um, when I was in law school with Alex Bickle, I've always been an adamant opponent of the standing doctrine if it's meant to preclude challenges to acts that are ultra virus, the federal power. I'm not in favor of giving people standing to challenge every financial determination that is done under a government program if we know that they have jurisdiction. But I think there's a pretty strong case to say that this comes way outside of the HEROES Act, and it would be nice if some court can start to deal with that. That's my view. And I do think it's going to happen, whether it's going to happen by fiction or more candid recognition. Every single argument that has been made to explain why we have to have standing, like to get concreteness in litigation. You think if the Republicans the challenge, they're going to get some rube lawyer who's not going to bother to look at the record because there's only a half a billion dollars or a trillion dollars at stake. No, this thing will be fully litigated to the hill. And if there are multiple lawyers, that's what the multi-district panel can do, is to pick a litigant who's known to have the resources, interests, and abilities to prosecute the case. Well, I think if we tried to take that approach from other cases, corporate law and other cases, and apply it to the United States government, with all of the nominal stakeholders around government, which is to say all of us, uh, and create standing, uh, not standing, but to, but to create a vehicle for judicial review for anybody, any citizen, any taxpayer uh, who believes that a law is being under-enforced. I, think, no, no, I didn't say under-enforced. I said ultra-virus. Or enforced or, or, or ultra-virus, or even, even if it's ultra-virus, even if it's, I think any claim could be re, rephrased as a nominal ultra-virus claim. In any event, I think you'd be encouraging people to give it a shot. And I think it would flood the courts with lawsuits. And if I think if the courts actually accepted this, this, uh, this new role, it really would be become a, uh, an, the judiciary would become an, an ad, an ad hoc free floating, uh, council of constitutional revision. But Richard, I'm claiming the last word on this for once because we're going to change gears. Oh, that's okay. You may be both last and wrong. <laughs> yeah, so, so, um, what did the, what did Robert Jackson say? We are not, uh, last because and we're not final because we're infallible. We're in final fallible because we're fine. That's right. So I claim infallibility on that issue and we're going to move on because if there's one thing the Biden administration won't forgive, uh, it is President Trump taking all those documents down to Mar-a-Lago. We're recording this just a few days after uh, Judge Cannon, uh, District Judge Eileen Cannon, issued her decision uh, the, for the appointment of a special master to oversee the, the collection and use of these documents uh, that the Justice Department has obtained from uh, President Trump's home, so to speak, in Mar-a-Lago. Richard, what are your reactions to the judge's decision? 
I mean, about the special master and so forth? Yeah, we'll talk about the politics around it. We'll talk about the politics around it. We'll talk about the tactics. Okay, well, first of all, I think- Let's start with the decision. You know, the politics around this are so acute. There has never been a case in which any previous president has ever been served with not just a subpoena to present papers, but with a actual seizure. It seems pretty clear that other presidents, including President Obama, have taken papers out of the White House and are trying to put them digitized into their situation. So I think the novelty of the case is such that you can't say, well, we just use general project when in fact the whole political structure of the nation is at stake in this case. One knows for better or for worse that if you go after Trump and he is prosecuted, it will surely alter. We can't be sure in what direction the way in which his chances for presidential nomination will work in 2024. We can't even figure out what it's going to do to the election here. But what we can do is to say it's a huge source of uncertainty up or down. So as a matter of general political prudence, I would not want to bring these things unless I could show the following. And that following would be that the removal of these papers has resulted in some actual compromise to the operation of the security apparatus of the United States. As best I can tell, that has not happened. They are strewn over the floor. We don't know who strewed them there. Was it the government or was it Trump who did it? Uh, Leave that aside. Uh, But there's no claim that there's been a leak to any third party, any compromise of American agents overbroad, any release of government confidential plans or the like. So I would not sort of do this. I would chastise him. But now they're setting him up for an obstruction charge. So the judge gets this thing. And the normal procedure, I'm almost sure, is that the government takes stuff. um, It gets to keep it as long as it wants. And then when it tries to introduce it into evidence in some kind of a hearing, you could bring a motion to suppress um, and resolve the issue that way. If you do that, then the investigation goes steaming along very rapidly. Uh, But what the judge did in this case is she had a very different attitude. She says, I think this whole thing is sufficiently overbroad. I'm kind of dicey. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a special master, which is a common practice, to look at things and stop everything from going on at the same time. And you will see two sorts of reactions. If you believe that this is essentially the worst kind of vindictive hunting expedition, you'll say, thank God that she managed to slow this down. But if you believe it's a legitimate suit, you say, oh, my God, I think Larry Tribe with just a little bit of hyperbole announced that this was tantamount to Dred Scott. Um, I think that's probably a bit overstated and therefore ought to be resisted. I'm actually torn between the two of them uh, because I think given the atypicality of the litigation, I'm not basically happy with the situation which says, oh, the precedent is bring a suppression motion later on. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't like seeing super favors being given to Trump. And I can't analyze the motives of this particular judge as to why she chose this. She can say I'm choosing it because I, I choose this because I think this thing is wildly overbroad and I have no confidence. Or she says I'm choosing this because I think it's really a very good investigation and I'm afraid that it's going to succeed and I want to slow it up. I am not a crystal ball reader with respect to her mind. So I I sit there uh, generally troubled by this situation. As you know, I am have, have two things. One is I think that Trump, the quicker he leaves public office, the better. And on the other hand, I'm opposed to all of the efforts to get him through the criminal process. Uh, so it, that leaves me in a very strange position. And so it takes wiser minds like yours, Adam, to resolve this conundrum. <laughs> 
the attacks on the judge are ridiculous. Um, and I've seen I've seen even worse. I saw one person accuse her of, of obstruction of justice herself. Um, she's a you know, she's a former assistant U.S. attorney. She actually clerked for one of my favorite judges, uh, Judge Stephen Colleton of the of the Eighth Circuit. She's a serious lawyer and a serious judge. And so I I, I have every reason to think she's taking this seriously. Um, and you raise a good point. Just because she's appointed the special master, it doesn't say anything about the ultimate outcome of these things. When the Justice Department filed its opposition to the the motion for a special master, if I remember correctly, they asked for extra pages, uh, and she granted it to them uh, so that nobody could say that, that they were given short shrift here. And maybe that's what's happening here with with Trump himself. And she's appointed the special master um, not because. Uh, she thinks that 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 Trump deserves a break, but rather um, that she wants to make sure that this process is undertaken as carefully as possible. This this criminal investigation, so that if the country does reach the extraordinary moment of a president being uh, indicted for for breaking the law, that every precaution has been taken along the way to make sure that this is being done the right way. Now, a second thing I'd add, and and I'll just. I mean, to the extent that I'm not always sort of over my skis on this podcast or, or <laughs> out of my depth, this is I'm not a criminal lawyer uh, or a criminal. And so I, I don't know the ins and outs of, of the appointment of special masters. But I was struck in, in her order uh, by a couple of things. Uh, one is that she specified that the special master's role is to review um, materials uh, with respect to the investigative purposes of uh, or that she's she's enjoining the government from reviewing and using the seized materials for investigative purposes as I, as I've understood during the period yes right during this review so as I as I've understood it the justice department is still and the government more broadly is still able to do national security reviews of the materials that that it obtained from Mar-a-Lago um, of course, the line between those two things is always difficult. The, the 9-11 Commission 20 years ago, so much of it was focused on the difficulties of the line between the national security activities of the Justice Department and other agencies mm-hmm. uh, and the criminal uh, the, 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 the criminal investigation purposes of the Justice Department and other agencies. So it's a hard line sometimes to draw in practice, and there are real practical challenges to it, but it's an important line. And so I was struck by the fact that, as I understood it, her order and opinion draws that same line. And now they'll go through uh, the the special master, once appointed, uh, will oversee the process of of the assertion of privilege. That's attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. We'll see what that actually – oh, and also whether there's genuine personal property in those materials. But of the government – but but in all of this, those are very specific – uh, limits on the Justice Department. They're narrow limits. And so the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see what the special master, how he or she actually conducts this process and how uh, they actually do end up deciding uh, questions of privilege. And on executive privilege, by the way, it's very complicated. It's not clear to me at all that, that a former president can assert executive privilege. In fact, my instincts would be that a former president can't assert executive privilege in, in contradiction of, of the, the actual sitting president. But we'll see. 
Um, but we'll have to wait and see. So in other words, the insight you're making is that uh, given the fact that he's a distinctive kind of privilege and all these things are going there, uh, we have no idea which way it's going to come out. So I have one question to you, and maybe you could know. Uh, the obvious issue here is one that has to deal with delay. And we know that there's a substantial number of papers, but certainly in the grand scope of things, it's not an unusual number. Do you did not put any time limit on when it was that the special master had to file his or her report, did he? Did she? I don't think so. I could be wrong, but well, I don't think so. I don't think she did either. Now, to me, I would have put something on there. And then, of course, what's the date? Suppose you say it's 60 days. So that would be on election day, right? And then you have to do it. I assume that what you're going to do originally is that the report that's going to be filed by the special master will be confidential to the judge. She will then have to decide what portions of it to act upon and what portions to have reviewed by the two parties. And so the thing won't be made public until after the vote has been taken in 2022. And I think, you know, is that a good or a bad thing? Again, it depends on which way you think about this. Um, I tend to be of the view that there is a little bit of vendetta going on in this particular case. I think one of the issues that it was kind of raises that is nobody sees the Justice Department going helter-skelter to investigate Hunter Biden and the stuff that is on his laptop, although there's some of that stuff which is a lot more inflammatory towards the president than anything that you could have in Mar-a-Lago. It's also the case one of the things that kind of troubles me about this is there seems to be a series of slow leaks to the Washington Post and other friendly outputs. And I am not at all happy about a situation in which I think that the attorney general or his or her office is engaging in cooperative activities with some of the press, which is known to be strongly anti-Trump. Now, I don't know whether all of this stuff is true, but it seems to be the case that we have all sorts of statements that are made in breathless tones about what the quality of these doctrines are. But again, Adam, you know, not being a, a full-time expert on this, I am not aware of any allegation that any of the papers that have been misplaced or mismanaged in Mar-a-Lago have ever been seen by a third person who's not authorized to review. And then the other question you raise is very difficult is when does a former president get the claim executive privilege over his or her papers? It's not at all clear. Uh, the current president can say, I need this stuff. So you want to claim privilege so it can't be seen. I need it to run the operation. Who's going to prevail under these circumstances? Is it going to be a balancing test that you have to look at what the administration wants as opposed to what the other side wants to be concealed? Or is it going to be just a hierarchical test which says, yes, out presidents out of office can claim the privilege, but if they claim it, it could always be overridden by the incumbent. And do you really want to apply that rule to those things that are not neutral doctrines directed to matters which have no direct concern to either party, but where the doctrines, in fact, go to the question of whether or not you could fail in for guilt uh, by the past president for the way in which he handled the doctrines or distributed them? So again, I'm just torn all the way up and down. I sort of deeply wish that this thing had never started. Uh, and the simplest way to do that is to make sure that Mr. Trump, once in his life, would decide that uh, playing by the ordinary rules would actually be a decent situation. So I'm going to ask the same question of you that I asked of me. Why on earth did he keep these things if he's not bothering to read? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you that this all did start in the first instance with mm. President Trump bringing all of this material down to Mar-a-Lago. And that's part and parcel of President Trump utterly refusing to accept the election results uh, and utterly refusing to have an orderly transition. This all could, all these things could have been easily squared away in the two months between, uh, the three months between the election and the inauguration. 
Uh, so President Trump, in the first instance, created all these problems for himself. Now, of course, as you said, it's not clear that the Justice Department has clean hands here. I'm very troubled by the leaks as well. Um, with with people in the Justice Department, uh, prosecutors and investigators have every incentive and every understandable reason to want to have successful prosecutions and investigations. And so, you, while we want we want and we need prosecutors to keep the public interest squarely in mind. I, I quoted Justice Jackson before, and I, I could quote him again, his, his, his sort of timeless statement on the nature of federal prosecution, the speech that he gave, I think, to the, what was it, the, 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 the gathering of AUSAs 70 years ago. Um, but anyway, we should be wary of what people in the Justice Department are doing. We talked about this a little bit in our last episode. I have I have great confidence, uh, total confidence, actually, in, in Judge now Attorney General Garland and his oversight of the Justice Department. But of course, we should be careful about what's happening within the Justice Department and the problem of leaks, the problem of information leaking out of agencies. That happens over and over again. We saw it with the IRS a year or two ago with the leaking of tax returns. And we have every reason to believe that materials obtained by the Justice Department could be leaked uh, against President Trump because of who he is uh, and 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 the things that he's done and and people's either justifiable or unjustifiable uh, opposition to him. I think is quite justified. But I'll, I'll just say I think this again. I think the key here is that Judge Cannon's order specifically limits this to the investigative, the criminal investigative side of the Justice Department. And to the extent that the Biden administration can continue to carry out its national security activities, then. Yeah, I wish there were a time limit on the special master, but I'm less worried about the absence of the time limit. But one last thing um, before before I go on this executive privilege point. Um, of course, denying the executive privilege to former presidents could have real negative effects. Um, uh, first of all, it means that we're counting on a current president, including the one who defeated the last one in an election, uh, to 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 faithfully. Um, administer executive privilege and assert executive privilege on behalf of his political rivals. Uh, and to the extent that a sitting president doesn't do that, it's going to change the incentives around executive privilege for all future uh, presidents and their immediate advisors. And it will, it, will, it will undermine the very reasons for having executive privilege in the first place. So I do, I worry about that. But, but, but at the end of the day, I worry more about taking executive privilege and and uh, moving that power outside of the, the immediate president. The immediate president has any number of discretionary powers, pardoning, enforcement discretion, as we've discussed earlier, and other things that stay in the office. They don't leave when they leave. A former president can't pardon people. A former president can't retroactively assert that he actually did pardon somebody that he previously pardoned. All these things ultimately are left in the office that the president leaves behind. And so I do worry that presidents will misuse executive privilege um, with respect to their, their predecessors. Um, but at the same time, I worry more about past presidents, and not just this one, but any past president claiming a share of executive privilege. There's a reason why we call it executive privilege and not former executive privilege, and I like to keep it that way. Well, I mean, if you're talking about the fellow with respect to his own documents, it's a little bit different than talking about activities that are currently done and the conflicts. Of, well, yeah, that's that's true. That's and true. So the conflicts are there are a little bit more acute, I, and I'm not saying I know what the wait, wait, Richard, wait, just to interrupt. Do you mean? 
the president's personal materials or the official documents of his presidency? Well, certainly, I mean, I would say it probably covers a little bit of both, but I'm not sure Uh, how much. I think the technical way in which this thing is resolved is a balancing test in which the presumption is in favor that the current president prevails unless the other president can show some powerful private need why things ought to be kept confidential. And for example, if there's stuff in official documents that would reflect ill on somebody in a false fashion, it may well be that protection of innocent parties is a reason to limit the ability of the president either to access the information or to disclose the information that he's accessed. And I think there's some kind of a balancing test that is put into place, which has all the disabilities of all balancing tests, but the necessity is the same thing. If cases get close, you're going to always have disagreements. The one point I think I disagree with you about is I don't think that we can give a clean bill of health to Mr. Garland as the current attorney general, notwithstanding his past reputation and record, if it turns out that all of these leaks are taking place under his watch. It's very difficult to exactly know to what extent you hold somebody who's in charge of an office responsible for the peccadillos of those people who beneath him. But on a matter of this particular importance, if we see these leaks continue to take place and nobody seems to be punished at this point for it, then it starts to be, well, is this a matter of insufficient importance or is this implied or enforcement or implied acquiescence and so forth? But I can't see how it doesn't reflect ill on the current attorney general if the leaks are taking place from an office of which he has been in charge, particularly since nobody else seems to be taking any credit or any blame for the leaks that have been made. And so what what makes this case so difficult is normally you like to see that there's somebody riding a white horse and somebody else who's riding a dark horse, and you could favor the guy who's riding the white horse, the the virtuous guy. But as best I can tell, there's nobody who comes out of this thing looking better after it has started than they did before this thing has started. That is, the whole process as it continues to wind out there seems to reflect ill on everybody involved in this case. I don't think it affects particularly ill on the judge. I think she's basically using her best judgment. But it's certainly clear if you take the tribe measure as one extreme version of a common sentiment on the part of the progressive American left, um, she's not going to be immune from criticism either. And then this leads me with the one last question. I think as a general matter, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, uh, orders like this are not appealable. So whatever she says will go because it's not a final judgment. But I would think on a matter of this importance, you may be able to get a writ of mandamus uh, to say, this is so far out of the norm in these particular cases that you're violating the basic law and that what you have to do is to go back to the normal suppression remedy. I don't know the answer to that question either. Uh, But I can assure you, if I don't know the answer to the question, uh, there are going to be lots of different answers to the question. uh, So that uh, when you're looking at these things, Uh, In addition to having uncertain procedural standards as to when you can and cannot appeal, they're going to be very uncertain substantive standards as to how these things ought to be applied. So I just regard this as a highly unfortunate incident in American life, and I wish them all well in trying to solve it. But I have, in this particular case, no heroes. Well, in terms of what happens next, The New York Times has a piece out, excuse me, recently um, sketching out some some the, the options that the the Justice Department is uh, reportedly uh, considering, and here I guess that would be another leak. But as the, the Times reports, uh, the, the Justice Department might might 
file a motion with Judge Cannon to reconsider or to narrow her ruling uh, or to request the kind of time and scope review that we've been discussing for the special master's review, Mm -hmm. or the time says they're considering possibly appealing to the 11th circuit. I mean, a mandamus of some sort. Yeah. And, and I, I I actually don't know uh, whether that's, uh, whether that's allowed uh, at this stage or what the standard of review for the 11th circuit would be. So we shall see, but I I will just say on judge Garland, uh, I keep, sorry, of course I have it. Attorney general Garland. Um, for what the attorney general, for how we judge him, I think in the long run or the medium run, sure, we will have to judge his management of the justice department in this respect. And to the extent that he doesn't, uh, take actual efforts to crack down on leaks. And I think to, 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 to make clear to the public that he's trying to crack down on leaks, uh, that would be a real failure on his part and he ought to be criticized. And of course we, people can argue, well, is he doing enough? There's always going to be some leak somewhere, but is he doing enough to really pursue it and to reduce it? We should judge him on that. But I, th- I don't think we can rush to judgment on that in just the immediate aftermath of the last few days. You know, we'll have to save that for a future episode of this podcast. Yes, I think time has run its course. Adam, thank you for pushing me on the griddle. I hope I did the same to you. Oh, thank you. But now I will fare thee well until you announce we're having another show. Thanks, Richard. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. All righty. 